0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto
0: and Christopher Hurtado.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss, But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado, and I have a guest co-host with me today, Shiloh Logan. Welcome, Shiloh.
1: Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. It's good to have you with me. It's been a while. It has been. It's been a little bit of time. You've been filling in for me over at Come Follow Me, and I appreciate that. I've been, I've been under, uh, I've been just been under a lot of work with school and and other things. I know you're you're really busy, so thank you for filling in uh, for me over there too. Well,
0: it's always a pleasure recording with with Ben and and with you too. So it's good to get have you with me again, and you know Riley's taking a little break, so let's talk about something you and I have talked about a lot, and and we're going to talk about that here and share that, and that's. Stories—the stories that we tell ourselves.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: our identity, maybe even our religion. You know, there's so many stories that we tell ourselves, and since contemplation is about noticing, I thought we should talk about noticing when we're telling ourselves stories. Yeah, and we don't—you know—we don't have to—we don't have to judge them right or wrong or anything. It's just noticing.
1: Yeah, you know, I've to start off this conversation. It's like what you know—what are stories? Yeah. The stories we tell ourselves. Like, what, what are stories? And one of the things I've talked about before is that we don't live in reality epistemically. We live in our stories about reality. You know, one of the ways, you know, like, what does that even mean, though? Yeah. And another way of expressing that is, you know, I've, I've said that, you know, God, no nation has ever gone to war over God. Not one, not once. <laughs> But nations have gone to war over and over and over again over their story about God. That's right. Right. Um, a- Another example I've used about this to try to illustrate the point. Now, it's one of those controversial topics. It's kind of come and gone in the public spotlight, but it's a really fantastic story, so I keep on going back to it. And it's the story of, of the football player, uh, the 49 quarterback, Kaepernick, C- 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 who was... Who who was kneeling, right? For the national oh, yeah. anthem. Remember the football player who was kneeling for the national anthem and how this was a really big national issue a couple of years ago? Yeah, I do. And this is really what spurned the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And everyone had an opinion about this. Even people who didn't even watch sports and even, he had no, <laughs> no dog in the fight had well, an that opinion about me. this. <laughs> Right, and it's like, and people who, people who hadn't watched the NFL for years were like, "I'm boycotting." And and it was it was, it was such an interesting national moment, and I I don't mean to uh, get caught up in in the meaning of this whole thing, but it serves as a really great story. And how this works is that, as I said, we don't live in reality; we live in our stories about reality. Because when we talk about reality, very few people are actually in contention over reality. Once we get down to reality, everyone's like, yeah. A- and it's like everybody agrees. It's in the stories about reality where all of a sudden contention, and that's where we're always segregating off into groups. So using this, uh, you know, the kneeling for the national anthem. So in reality, we just happen to have a... Now, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here in being able to create a story about a man and kneeling. and, what, and anyway, So we have a man who happens to be black who's kneeling on a field. That's it. That's, that's reality. There's a, there's a man who's kneeling on a field and it, in reality, there are people who are just standing in the stadium surrounding this man who's kneeling on a field. And that's just reality. And just to state the fact of what reality is, is non-controversial. Everyone's like, yeah, there's a guy kneeling and there's people in the stand standing. And in the air are certain vibrations that are, that are performed at a particular volume and a particular rhythm and a, and, a, and a particular wavelength. And on one side of the stadium is a cloth that has writing all over it, right? It has red and it has white, it has blue and it has some symbols on it. And it's just a piece of cloth with some writing on it. And, and nobody, <laughs> nobody gets angry at this. This, this, this isn't a contentious story. Because this is reality and everyone is agreeing with this. However, where everyone begins to have a problem is not in reality. It's in the meaning and the story that we have of reality. It's what does it mean that he was kneeling? What does it mean that these people were standing? that wavelength that was floating through the air that we call the national anthem that 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 sound that was going through there it has no meaning on the other side of the earth but on this side of the earth it has meaning because we've given it meaning that particular vibration that particular sound that particular sequence of of pitches and 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 it's a beautiful song i love that i love the the national anthem i think it's a beautiful song but and and the and the and the cloth that we call a flag And the meaning that we've given to the flag, you know, it's a piece of cloth, but it's the the meaning that we give to it. And so where people are arguing is not in the facts of reality. It's in the stories and the meanings that we take from the facts of reality. It's, it's the cause is the causal is the causation of what this represents. And this is where we get into the, the subject of stories, a story is the narrative that we act in and that we make our actions that give meaning to what we do and that forms and re-informs and and that we inform reality and that reality re-informs us about what our identity is. So identity is born out of stories. So this kind of gives us a context for, for for what this discussion is. Number one, we don't live in reality, we live in our stories about reality. Reality is non-controversial. Our stories about reality are very controversial. Nobody goes to war about God. Everybody goes to war about their stories about God. It, 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 we can almost be done with the conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, would just uh, there was a stop right there. Six-minute episode. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Shiloh, I myself, have, I grew up with two different uh, colors of, of uh, cloths. And two different uh, vibrations in the air, you know, between growing up between halfway uh, in in the United States and halfway in Venezuela, with the different colors and the different, you know, do, doing the things that that you do, whether you stand this way or that. And by the way, I still have no idea what it means to kneel while the colors are there and the and the vibrations are in the air. I know what it means to stand, and 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 I don't I don't really have a stand about that myself. And, and I don't know if kneeling is supposed to be the opposite of stand. I just really, I don't even know. I To this day, I don't know. And, and I'm really not worried about it. You can tell me if you want to. Well, this is where the story, but, gets, but really, this is where
1: the story gets really interesting because the quarterback, when he, was, when he wanted to do something, he was just going to sit down. And he was talking with a Marine friend of his. I think it was a Marine. It was a, a U.S. serviceman. Um, he said, you know what, though? To show respect it would be to kneel. And it was actually, it was actually his military buddy who told him that the greatest amount of respect would be to kneel as a form of protest because that's actually showing respect as opposed to going back and sitting down. So this is where, great story. This is where meaning gets all complicated and all convoluted really fast because. He was going to go protest by sitting down. Then his, his military buddy told him to go kneel. But then all of the military supporting people in the stand who think he's disrespecting his kneeling on the ground is now, is now yelling at him because they're standing in the stands because he's not putting his hand over his heart for the for the uh, the sound vibrations that are going through the air and for the, the imprints that's going on on the cloth. Now I now I get the for the people who the flag is deeply meaningful and who the national anthem is deeply meaningful and for those who have loved ones who have sacrificed and suffered under the banner and the identity of what those symbols mean it sounds like I'm being very flippant and very dismissive but I'm not I can assure you I'm not but what you might sense though is just what I'm trying to communicate is getting us to really quickly here to go to a conversation to be able to identify what it means by story and the power that story has. Because if anyone is feeling any kind of, any kind of resentment for what I'm saying, or if anybody thinks I'm being too shallow or dismissive, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's that feeling that you have that maybe I'm being too dismissive that we can analyze ourselves and ask ourselves, why do I, how did I create this meaning? Because meaning is what gives our emotions sense, right? That's what I replace our emotions and our emotions get attached to the meanings and those meanings and those emotions get attached to how we form our identities. So that when this guy kneels, I mean, how many people in the stands really even know the quarterback personally, right? <laughs> but the fact is what he's doing down there on the field literally feels like it offends them, like he's personally attacking them. And so they're in the stand feeling personally attacked when he... <laughs> He's not personally... <laughs>
0: he's, kneel- he's just kneeling. He's just
1: kneeling, right? But it's not just kneeling. It's the story about what it means for him to be kneeling. and And then it gets convoluted, just like I said, because he thought he was being respectful when he was just going to go sit down, but his military friend told him to go kneel. Anyway, so... You
0: know, it's interesting. One of the things we can talk about is is that we don't actually even come up with these stories ourselves. There're plenty of stories that we do come up with. And and a lot of them are variations on themes that we've been given, but a lot of the stories that that we're talking about here are are handed down to us, right? They're given to us by our parents and by our forebears, uh the, you know. And so that's one thing we can talk about. But first, I was going to bring up another way of thinking about this because I think we're talking about we're talking about socially constructed reality, right? Yeah. So I always point out that if you go out into, let's say, you know, you're 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 the only person. If you would be the only person and you would go out and explore the universe, you would never actually come across a marriage. You know, you would just nowhere in the universe would you say, "Oops, I just stumbled on on a marriage. I almost stepped on it." You know, I didn't see it there. Right? It's just (laughs) it doesn't exist in reality. Right? It's just not a thing in reality. Same thing with borders between countries. You know, we like to even in Ecuador, there's a there's they've painted a, a line that's the equator in ecuador right and you can say you can step on one side and step on the other side and step on it and you can say i'm on i'm in the north northern hemisphere i'm in the southern hemisphere i'm on the equator but this is an imaginary line this doesn't really exist in reality it's like being at four corners right yeah same, same idea right and and then uh you know how about marriage you know we say if somebody if you say uh, the right word at the right time at, in front of the right people, you're married. Well, what if the guy who's uh, performing the marriage, if it's a guy performing the marriage and he's an actor and, and he's acting? Now it's different, right? Even though he has the authority outside, maybe as, as a moonlighting, he's actually marrying people, but his day job is to act or the other way around, right? It, it's not the same thing. We don't think it's really, you're really getting married if you say all the same things in all the same way with the same guy if you're acting. And so they're just stories. Yeah. Yeah. We live in our stories about reality.
1: And in fact, that's how we gauge each other, right? Because whenever I see anybody else, I'm, I'm, I'm gauging subconsciously. I'm not even conscious of the fact that I'm doing it. I'm gauging who they are, what they are, how they move the body language, you know, the language itself, how language is constructed and how we act and whether or not they're in my group or they're outside of my group, whether or not they're in. One area or another, we're always trying to differentiate people from each other. And we differentiate by our stories, stories of ethnicity, stories of, of culture, stories of language, stories of nationality, stories of religion, stories of everything, everything becomes this type of story where we entertain not necessarily reality, but the stories that we have of reality. And that's what we live in. And we, and we process and find relationships with.
0: Yeah. You know, I remember a neighbor I had back in Houston, Shiloh, this neighbor, we didn't know him at the time. And we, you know, he had a Lamborghini in his driveway. He had a Ferrari in his driveway. He had a Mustang Cobra. Sometimes he'd park other stuff outside his house on trash day. We saw interesting stuff and, you know, and we just, we couldn't figure out wh- who is this guy and what, what's going on with this guy. Right? <laughs> We're just making up stories about this guy based on what we see. And when we finally meet him, no story that we came up with is anywhere close to the reality of this guy, which is so interesting. I mean, when you meet the guy, it turns out he has a collection of astronaut suits dating back to pre-Apollo 11 in his coat closet when you walk in his house. This is the reality of the guy, Right. Uh, he got the the Lambo and the Ferrari from um, whoever made the movie, the James Bond movie. They're the ones that were thrown out of the back of the plane in one of those Pierce Brosnan, James Bond movies. And he worked with Harry Potter, ma- on making Harry Potter, and he made uh, pressure suits for, he has a picture of himself with an SR-71 Blackbird and a picture of himself in James Bond's Aston Martin. And he has an ejection seat in his living room where he sits and watches TV from a, from a jet fighter, you know. And, and then, and he's got, he actually sells fully automatic submachine guns, you know, with the folding stocks and everything to the police. And for, he worked with Skunk Works in making these pressure suits, you know, for, Jet fighters and things like you know the spy planes like like SR seventy one Blackbird. He actually gave us a CIA Christmas tree ornament for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) This guy was so interesting, and we had these silly stories. I won't even tell you the stories. We had these all these stories about him based on what we saw. You have no idea what's underneath the surface. And so these stories, not only are they not true, you know, because they're not really reality, right? But they're probably not even. Well, should I say? Can I say they're not accurate? I mean, they're already not true. So, what am I saying?
1: Well, I think I think in a lot of ways we have to recognize that. You know, I'll just use myself as an example. So, this construct that I call Shiloh. You know, it's it's got this body, this tangible body. You know, but what does that even mean? Is 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 my is my body Shiloh? If I we're not the first person to have this conversation. Right. If I chop off my arm, am I Shiloh? Am I still Shiloh? You know, what if I get dementia and I lose my memory? Am I still Shiloh? You know, it's, then I have my body, but I don't have my mind. You know, what if, what if a thousand things, like what constitutes actually what Shiloh is? And at least in one regard, if we go past the, the physicalness of it, Shiloh for me is this idea of all the things that I know that I know And all the things that I know that I don't know. And then there's this whole world of things that I don't even know that I don't even know. And so for instance, it's like, I know that I live in Bakersfield, California. For all the realms and the intention and everything that I know epistemically, I know that I live in Bakersfield, California. I also know that there's this thing called calculus that I never learned. So it's like, I know that I don't know calculus. So I know there's a thing called calculus. I know that I never learned it. And I know that I could go learn it if I wanted to. I don't, but I could go learn it. But then there's this realm of things that I don't even know, that I don't even know. I don't even know that I don't even know these things. And so the identity of what Shiloh is, what this egoistic thing, what I call an ego, the Shiloh, is an accumulation of all the things that I know that I know and all the things that I know that I don't know. And... Within that thing that I call Shiloh, though, is this entire other world of things that I don't even know that I don't even know. So when you said, for instance, that this life is, is the story a lie or is a story fake or is a story a fiction? Um, it's in this really weird realm where our context to reality is based within the limited parameters of everything that our experience has brought us to the things that we know that we know and the things that we know that we don't know. But yet, we lack the context for everything outside of that. So, in one regard, our stories about reality are uh, number one; they're of our own making. So, there's a whole world of subjectivity there. And two, they're not necessarily reality, in that we're their we are the story's creator, and as their creator. Everything that we put into that story is simply an accumulation of our own experience of the things we know we know and the things we know we don't know. So we think we're acting according to reality because when we look outside, we see this world and we know what we think we know how it operates. But we only know how it operates according to the experience that we've had, which may be more or less than anyone else. And so maybe we're the most experienced person on the planet, but still we're limited by the world and the infinite world of possibilities of things we don't even know we don't even know. So even the most educated, aware, traveled, experienced person in the entire world, even their view for as well-formed as it is, is still a story that's framed and projected and created by the ego. So in that regard, the stories we tell ourselves, are they lies you know, it, this gets into the story of the matrix. So for anybody who's ever seen the matrix <laughs> in one regard is, is the matrix world real because it's perceived as real versus the real, real world. And so this kind of gets into a discussion of what is real and what is reality, but yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, I wonder if I were to strip away all of these things that you're talking about from my self, I don't even know if I should say myself. There's a, there's a lowercase self. There's an uppercase self. We've talked about the true self and the false self in past episodes. I wonder if I would find, I just, I, I haven't done the exercise, Shiloh. You know, I think if I just, without actually going through all the steps, if I just project myself out into a place where I've taken away all of these things, I still have this sense that there's still something that's me. And, and yet, I don't know if that's true.
1: yeah that's kind of trippy
0: maybe it's just that i'd like there to be right maybe i just like there to be something and so if and if there isn't then that means that here's one possibility right it just means that that there's just one thing and that my separateness from everything else and by the way my separateness from god is not real but imagined it's my it's part of my subjective experience and if that's true then i can become one with god by altering my perception of reality not reality itself because the the reality itself is already you know it's just, so it's just as an exercise This is something I did in my classroom as a philosophy professor, is to say, okay, and just imagine a classroom. We've all been in a classroom. How many things are in this classroom, I would ask my students. And they'd start counting desks and chairs and the blackboard and the projector and the markers, maybe. Maybe they start counting, you know, they might get down to their articles of clothing and and those of their classmates, and they, they count the carpet as one. And then I look down and I say, well, why are we counting the carpet as one? It's made up of carpet squares. They're like tiles, you know, made out of carpet. And by the way, even if they weren't, and even though they are, there are fibers. Why aren't we counting the fibers? And so it's just arbitrary what we count and what we don't count. And God bless Aristotle for giving us a sense of categories. And Because and I think, we, maybe we can talk about this, I think we, we sort of need these things to get by. We, we have to tell ourselves these stories to get by in some sense. And, and some of them are useful, and this is important, until they're not. And when they're not anymore and we still hold on to them, then we're holding ourselves back. Then we're damning ourselves, right? So it really is kind of arbitrary what we count. And we could say there's one thing. Because where does one thing end and another thing begin? It's really arbitrary the way we look at this. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I, you know, over the, the weekend, so I, uh, I have a fascination with the philosophy of evil. And, uh, people who know me know that I like to, I'm studying Satan, um, in a Mormon context for my, for my scholarship. Um, but, uh, what I call Satan is my brother from another mother, but the, the, the book that I, my, my, uh, professor had told me to get is called the problem of evil. He says, Hey, just start with this book. And, uh, it's edited by Mark Larimore. And, it's actually really good. It's just a, it's a compilation of a lot of original source documents. And so I was flipping through it over the weekend as my family and I were traveling up to Northern California and I came across chapter 18, which is on Meister Eckhart. And I was like, Meister Eckhart? I said, huh, a good contemplative mystic there. So I opened it up and his chapter was on blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm like, well, goodness, to have Mr. Ar- <laughs> Meister Eckhart being talking about the Beatitudes in a book on evil, I am very intrigued. So I began to read, and, you know, it's it's very small. And, and he goes through, and just to kind of condense what he had to say was was this really interesting thing about empty. He didn't say emptying. That wasn't his words, but I've talked about emptying before. So, you know, we've done multiple episodes on the Beatitudes, right? And and talking about what this emptying thing is here. But this is what the stories are. The stories are what give us our identities about what we mean to each other and about how these relationships work and what we think we— the expectations that we make of ourselves and of each other. And we create these these things almost entirely subconsciously. But yet, repentance in the LDS Bible Dictionary says that it's— beginning to see god anew to see ourselves differently and to see the world around us differently which it completely puts the entire definition of repentance into the not into a metaphysical category but an epistemic one which means that we have to learn to see the world differently which means it's not about reality changing it's about our views about reality or we can say our stories about reality
0: so i think we begin to go somewhere with this conversation because it's really abstract right and so the question is what do we do with this right we're, we're telling ourselves these stories we're we're talking about what they are and what they mean and how and how to and and how to notice them right and how to distinguish them and now what do i do with this as a contemplative what do i do th- with this in my relationship with the divine Right. Is that where we want to go with the conversation? Yeah.
1: So, you know, I was talking about Meister Eckhart a little bit and what he had brought up. He brought up a lot of things, but of the other things he talked about is, is he said that even when I have this concept that I want to have God in me, we haven't emptied far enough because we still have the I. It's the story of ourself. And you know, Meister Eckhart went so far as to say he, he was called a heretic for it, but he says, we, we need to even even empty the very idea of God. Now he wasn't saying reject God, but it's this idea that most of us live not really recognizing who and what God really is, but it's our idea of God that we project onto God. And even DNC One talks about this. You know, when when we look at uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, I've always been fascinated that at the very beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, and in the preface, this very idea was brought up because it's in uh, in se- I think it's in what section 16. I'm just looking here. Um, they seek not the Lord to establish His righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way after the image of his own God. We might say this differently as saying that no one is seeking to know the Lord for the Lord's own sake and on His own terms, but rather we are trying to walk after our own stories and after a God made in the image of our own stories
0: right, and you're opening us to the possibility of of a different interpretation of that verse than what most people might have in mind, and it's really instructive
1: yeah, because I mean it's the same thing that the ancient Israelites were doing right because they come out of egypt they 've had four hundred years of being trained by the Egyptian gods, they know what the Egyptian gods are and do they see the 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 manifestations and the statues and everything what their, their gods look like and so when the israelites go into go into uh the wilderness they're led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night now we know symbolically that cloud vapor water is always symbolic of chaos it, it's it's basically god saying listen i'm this thing that's undefined in front of you you don't have a story about me. You can't, you can't even conceptualize what I am. I mean, have you ever been in a cloud, like a really heavy, dense fog, where if you look away from you, you can't see more than five feet. But if you put your arm out trying to touch the cloud, you can never really touch it. Right.
0: Yeah, sure. You take
1: five steps and you take five steps into the cloud and you can never really touch it. But then you look back where you were at and you can't see where you're at because it's all clouded up. Right. If you're in a really dense fog. And God's, God's saying, I'm like that for you right now. You can't see me. You can't put me in a box. You can't put me into a graven image. You can't give me your likeness. I don't look anything like what you think you think I look like, but yet I'm all around you. I'm protecting. I'm like a covering around you. Same thing with the fire. And so when the Israelites end up at the bottom of Sinai, what do they do? They're like, well, we can't, deal with this god that we can't understand that we can't conceptualize that we can't that our stories can't, because of the things we know we know and the things we know we don't know from egypt that we can't conceptualize this thing yet and so they did what they knew to do from their own perspective their own bias their own things they know they know the things they know they don't know and they made a golden calf well this wasn't a golden calf as far as egypt's effigy this was a golden calf that was in some symbolism of yahweh they weren't going to some Egyptian god. This golden calf was in symbolism of Yahweh. They had made an image of Yahweh in their own comprehension.
0: Yeah, and one that's not really foreign to their understanding of, as, as you're pointing out, of God. That's right. You know, of, as god, of God as they understand this is, not, this is not, I think it's often seen as they're going off and they're worshiping something other than God. In this calf. No, this calf is to them a representation of the God. Right.
1: Now, eventually Moses on Sinai, while the people are down there making gods in their own image, Moses stands up there and he sees and it says, and he spoke to God as face to face as a man speaks to a man. I think it's Exodus 33. But the interesting thing here is, is that God says, I'm like you, your true self. I'm in you, you're in me. We're, we're the same and it's not this it's it's kind of this role reversal whereas we're trying to make god in our image but then god says i created you in my image and so we're in this relationship now where and this goes into what voltaire said right you know voltaire's famous yeah in the beginning god made man in his own image and god man has been trying to repay him the favor ever since and so repent how gentlemanly of us right <laughs> And so what we've been doing is we've been trying to make God in our image and our understanding. And the DNC even comes right out and says that it's like, we're not truly trying to seek after God. We're trying to make God in our own image, and our own likeness. And God has forever been trying to get us to break outside of the box. And so that's one of the things that as my own discipleship has become a very prominent theme in my own discipleship is simply this. Do I put God into too small of a box? Because in, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we think we have this really, really, really great corner and monopoly to the nature and characteristics of God because we say he's embodied. As if that—I mean, that, that's an important characteristic anyway, but, and, and it solves a few problems philosophically, but we don't really recognize that it creates a whole other litany of problems on the other side of that, too. Like it,
0: it caused, Oh, I know all too well,
1: right? Philosophically, it causes as many problems as it sure. solves, right? To have an embodied God as far as the philosophical conversation has been going on for the last 3,000 years. So it's not as if Latter day Saint theology has solved anything. Yes, this is an important distinction. Yes, we can believe in an in, in embodied God. Yes, this can bring new meaning to how we view God as, as an actual parent with five, you know, five fingers on each hand, two eyes, a nose, you know, two ears, that whole thing and that we're becoming we're 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 having experiences to become like god but here's the deal and i've said this before uh i think even on the contemplation podcast is if i tell you that my grandfather who was who was my superman right um if i tell you that he had five fingers 10 toes was six foot two and that i have his blue eyes i can even tell you that he was my superman and he could do nothing wrong and that i I felt safe with him even then just knowing the character physical characteristics of my grandfather that doesn't tell you the love that he had for me
0: well and it doesn't tell me really who he is either right i mean even so you have an experience of him and your image of him is based on your experience, and it isn't really all of who and what your grandfather is. Yeah. And even if it were, I don't have an experience. I only have what you tell me. And so in a sense, if, we, if your grandfather is like God, then you're like a prophet to me. And no matter what experience you have of God, if you tell me about it, I still don't have my own experience. Right. And I'm still going to interpret this, and I'm going to filter it through my own lenses, and I mean, come on, I, I'm pro- i I'm probably not the only one listening to you who had an image, some image of your grandfather come up as you described him. For example, if I say, think of an apple, your apple has a color. And by the way, if it didn't before I said your apple has a color, now it does. Right? And you may have thought of a green apple, and I may have thought of a red apple, and someone else may have thought of a Granny Smith apple that's green. There's yellow, right? There's green, There's red. There are different kinds of apples. I may not even prefer the, the the Washington apple. I may prefer the Fuji one, but I still think of it as the archetypal act, apple image. You know, the picture that comes to my mind may be that. There's so many possibilities, and and this is we think we have this figured out what what an apple is, <laughs> right? And, and right now we're talking about God,
1: right? And, and and that's the thing is is that we think that our concept of apple solves the issue indefinitely like yep we know what that is but it's funny even if you lined up every latter-day saint shoulder to shoulder and independently asked them without the other ones being able to hear you know it makes it difficult if they're all shoulder to shoulder but let's say you pull them out you, you know out of line, and you ask them what is the true eternal nature of god now, granted, you're going to have some overlap. You're going to have some people talking about the same things. You're going to, you know, people are going to say, well, he has a body and, uh, you know, he loves us and, and, and you're going to have some over, general overlap. But if you keep pushing them, you're eventually going to have an idea, an experience of God that is as unique, that has as many unique nuances as there are people you're talking to. We all have a different experience because we all have different stories. And,
0: and I can't repeat the words of, of Rumi enough. I mean, I quote him all the time on the podcast. But Rumi said, "There are as many paths to God as there are people on Earth," and I think it's because of what you just said. Yeah, I have my own understanding of God. I have my own relationship with God. I have my own path to God, and so can you.
1: Yeah, and so can you. And and, and this doesn't negate the LDS construct of, you know, like priesthood and priesthood ordinances. You know, that doesn't negate that construct.
0: Because, well, that's a track to run on. Right. Right. As a matter of fact, the the latest, uh, you know, parlance is the covenant path. Right. I mean, it's it's really it really is a track to run on. It's like this iron rod, this path. Right. This general direction that you head in. And yet how you walk that path is very personal and very individual and as much, as much as someone's, as much as our gate is when we actually walk, right. There's something individual to that.
1: Right. And, and to illustrate that, you know, to illustrate your point, you know, when I, when I taught seminary, when I taught early, early morning seminary, I once, when we were just starting to talk about church history, I wanted the students to understand the difficulty of what it means to, to actually record church history and about how how two or three people could have the exact same experience and record it differently. So I had everybody go outside. It was still dark outside and what have you. And and there were probably 12, 14 students. And I all had them bring out a piece of paper and a pencil and their little books. And I said, okay, you have five minutes. Stay here on this side of the church and you record everything that you see. Go out and observe everything, but stay kind of close together. And so we gave them five minutes and we all came in after the five minutes. And we said, okay, now everybody read what you saw. And I'm going to write it on the board. Now, granted, there was some overlap. A lot of students saw the same things. But inevitably, every single student, every single one, had something unique that no one else had experienced.
0: Right. My kids remember this exercise with fondness from, from your class, Shiloh. <laughs> and this is like the, the story that we, that we hear about the accident, you know, when there's an accident and there's witnesses. Everybody has their own version of what happened. Do we really even have access to what actually happened? It's hard to say. Yeah, You know, even I don't even know that a video can give it to us because that video has to be, it has to be interpreted in some sense. Just the visual, just the act of watching the video is an interpretation. And if you were then going to talk about it, okay, now I have the video. I've watched it. Now let me tell you what happened. You're back into the same problem all over again. Right. Because I mean, there's no getting around it. If we sit down to
1: watch a movie, we can talk about the facts of the movie in, in reality and say, hey, this happened, then this happened, and this happened. And if we if we stay in a particular parameter, we can do that and nobody's going to
0: argue. Yeah. We can talk about the guy kneeling on the field and the colors and the vibrations, right? We can have that kind of conversation. Exactly. About
1: it. But the minute you say, well, what did but this movie meaning. mean?
0: <laughs> right. right.
1: What did this mean? All of a sudden, you have as many experiences and meanings as you have people because we are the thing that creates meaning.
0: Ah, now you said a mouthful there. We are the thing that creates the meaning.
1: Yeah, because there's no objective meaning in the universe. Now, this doesn't go into nihilism. And that's where everybody wants to take that. You know, it's, you know if there's no meaning, then everybody's... It's just meaningless and, and nihilism comes in. But it's meaning... It's it's emptying and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. And what that does is that takes us out of a place where... A lot of nihilism kind of wants to find meaning in the meaningless. and it's like it's not there. But it's this thing that we have to understand is we are the ones that create meaning. and And we do that for several reasons. One of the main reasons we create meaning is to is psychologically how to handle suffering and sacrifice and trauma. we 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 need to figure out ways of being able to make sense of the things that are traumatic to us
0: right. This reminds me of those book titles that uh, I, I sometimes. When I see one, you know, their variations on the theme. I usually take a picture and I send them, do you right, Shiloh, the, the books that say everything happens for a reason, <laughs> right? Right. And, and, and sometimes the reason is I did something stupid and that's why it happened. Right. <laughs> and I come up with a story about what that means and how that happened. And, and maybe it doesn't say I was stupid, right? That, that's in, not in my story. <laughs> right. We're always trying
1: to find the reason why something happened, especially in our culture post the Enlightenment age. Um, there's so many books that have been written. There's a lot of been ink that's been spilled on post Enlightenment age thinking about how we have to know what things mean now. The cause, the cause for everything, right?
0: Yeah. So it's this causation conversation, right?
1: Yeah. And, and these are some of the things that f- cement our strongest meanings. The, the more the trauma in our lives, the more meaning we have to create in order to make sense of the trauma. And so some of the deepest identities that we have are trauma-informed. It, it usually goes back to something bad that happened to our, in our lives, that we, that we deem as bad in our lives.
0: Yeah, you know, the, I, I'm reminded in this conversation of of what is orthodoxy in Islam today, and that is this idea of, when it comes to causation of what we call in philosophy, occasionalism, which is the idea that everything is actually caused by God, so that, you know, we think, we see that when the flame touches the paper, that, the, 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 you know, the two come together, and the flame causes the paper to burn, but the the Orthodox Muslim belief today is that, no, it's God that causes the paper to burn. God is the one that's causing everything. And so, you know, I've I, philosophically, I've had my differences with that idea. But I see in this conversation that there may be a usefulness to this way of thinking. We can at least try it on as a thought experiment, as a contemplative practice, maybe even, uh, to, to think about this in these terms so that we stop making up all these stories about causation, right? We can see it. We can see everything as it's, it's back to this idea of everything is one. In other words, here's another way to put it. Alan Watts, I think it was who said that, um, that, that what we're, that what we're experiencing is as our own experience is really just God playing peekaboo with himself. (laughs) Do you get that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Alan Watts because I just pulled up the story. You were the first person to tell me this from Alan Watts, but it's the story of the Chinese farmer.
0: Oh, I love that story. And that's a great story on storytelling, isn't it? We should tell that story. It
1: really is. So I got it pulled up here. It says, once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all of his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we are so sorry to hear your horses run away. This is the most, this is most unfortunate. The farmer said, maybe The next day, the horse came back, bringing seven wild horses with it, and in the evening, everybody came back and said, Oh, isn't it lucky? What a great turn of events. Now you have eight horses. The farmer again said, Maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of the horses in, and while riding it, he was thrown off, and he broke his leg, and the neighbors came along and said, Oh, dear, that's too bad. And the farmer responded, Oh, maybe. Maybe. The next day, the conscription officers came around to conscript people into the army and they rejected his son because he'd broken his leg. Again, all the neighbors came around and said, well, isn't that great? Again, the farmer said, oh, maybe. The whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity and it's really impossible to tell whether anything that happens is good or bad because you never know what the actual consequence or the the fortune or the misfortune of that experience is going to be. And fortune and misfortune, isn't itself a story. It's based on how it's the idea that, uh, we talked about this. Oh, I forgot what podcast we talked about it about two hypothetical twins who've lived identical lives both being convicted of, of a crime that they committed and they go to the same prison, the same experience. One comes out of the prison experience thinking this was the best experience that could have ever happened to him. And he reforms his life. And the other one thinks this is the most horrible experience that's ever happened to him. And and he goes a different way with his life.
0: Right. Well, and usually ironically ends up back in the same place in the prison again. Right. And
1: so it's, it's this concept that we create our meanings. We create the meaning that we live into. And, I think the ultimate point here to uh, that I'm trying to make after <laughs> all of these great stories is that is one that you were already making. Christopher is stories are okay. They may be complete fictions for based on who we are and the bias we have of the the things we know we know and the things we know we don't know as per the experience we've had in our lives. But here's the thing. Stories are good in that they help us deal with our lives and they are good only until they're not
0: and that's where we have to be able to recognize when it's just a notice right this is what contemplation is about it's just noticing that we're in a story that we're telling ourselves a story and and if it's working if it's doing what it's supposed to do great and if not then remember it's a story right and so it, your whole life can become like a meditation wherein you know when you're meditating the idea is you're focusing on your breath, and if something else pops up, you just notice it. You don't judge it. You don't try to beat it back. No, I'm meditating. You know, darn it. Stop thinking of other things. You know, and you just, you can do this, right? And give yourself a heart, or you can just notice it, right? So we're not saying to make the story bad or wrong. We're not saying to, to reject it or accept it necessarily. The idea is just to notice it. Just notice it, and your whole life can become a meditation in this way. Yeah, and you can be free to to use the story. You can be free to accept it, to reject it, to let it go. As long as it's useful, use it. When it's no, when it's when it's not useful anymore, let it go. Just re, just remember, just notice it's a story.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of my own personal examples here with this. So, as far as my own life history, so my growing up, my family moved around a lot, and. And my father was a bit of what I call a serial entrepreneur. Um, He made and sometimes killed a lot of businesses. Um, Some of them were successful. Some of them weren't weren't so successful. We moved around a lot. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, And so kind of out of necessity, um, a little bit out of personal belief, um, a lot of other reasons, I was homeschooled my whole life. And so I never actually went to school as a kid, um, just moved from one place to another. <laughs> so I was always I was always homeschooled. I was an only child until I was 17. And then I have my only sister who was born. And, and so it was interesting, though, that my education suffered a lot growing up. I was very well-versed in the things that I could be well-versed in. But there were big gaps in my education that I felt very self-conscious about uh, in keeping up with my peers. And so I developed early on in my life this this dread and in this kind of existential dread of always feeling like I had to catch up. Like I was always behind and I always had to catch up to something like, like there was an expectation of where I should be that I wasn't, that I had to catch up to.
0: Well, somebody, maybe even everybody knew stuff you didn't know, right?
1: Yeah, that, uh, that my peers were, that there was something that my peers knew that I was supposed to know that I didn't know that I was supposed to catch up. So as they all graduated from high school and got there and got into college and was doing the college thing, I didn't, I didn't have a high school diploma. I didn't have a, I didn't even get a GED or a, or I didn't take the SAT or the ACT. Um, I went on one of my mission. I came back from my mission early I was supposed to be on supposed to quote. I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see that, but I was supposed to be on a two year mission, but I was only out for about two months before I had to come back for surgery and they wouldn't let me back on my mission. So that was a false expectation. Something I'd always wanted to be was a missionary. And then it just, it, it couldn't go back there to that moment. Right. And so then turning my life to a different path in a different way, then it's like my open, the possibility of going on mission opened up again. And at this time, I'm like, you know what? My life is going a different direction. I knew it was going a different direction. And I moved out to Utah. And it wasn't until I got married and my wife graduated the semester after we were married. And my wife knew the school, the whole school genre. She'd been going to school her, almost her whole life. I had never gone to school. And she goes, oh, yeah, it's really easy for you to get into BYU. Here's how. And I'm like, what do you mean it's really easy? I don't have an SAT. I don't have an ACT. I don't have a high school diploma. I don't have a GED. I don't have any basic. I was basically self-taught from the time I was sixth grade until I was out of my house. Now, I, I love to read. Like, I like I taught myself a lot of stuff. And, uh, and she's like, well, here, just do it this way. And so I did 30 credits of independent study. I had a 3.85 GPA. And then I applied to BYU using BYU's own independent study courses. And they accepted me as a full-time student without it, without, and by the time I was like 23, maybe 24. And so I got into BYU as without having a high school diploma, without having any of the normal, regular things. Now, the story that I was living under is that I, I wasn't a real student. Have you ever heard of uh, imposter syndrome is like, you, you feel have like,
0: have I ever heard of imposter <laughs> syndrome? <laughs> I live in imposter syndrome. <laughs> if it's, it's my it, whole life.
1: It's this it's this feeling, it's a story that you don't belong, that you don't you haven't followed the conventional path, that you are not where you, you do not measure up and add up to where you are. And so my You whole, don't
0: qualify to qualify to be where you are. And yeah, you're exactly. Get, you're gonna be found out, right? Yeah. And my story of getting into BYU is not that different from yours, by the way. I went from high school dropout to, to college professor. And, and, and I'm still, you know, I, I, sometimes I was just reading my kids, the story of Frank now catch me if you can. Yeah. And I, and I was trying to figure out if I'm any more legitimate of a, of a professor than he is <laughs> or, or was.
1: Yeah. So, and that's all that is, is what, what is legitimate? What is not legitimate is just a story that's held collectively by other people that, that we it have is. reference to. Right. And so my entire time at BYU, I did very well at BYU and I got good grades all the way through. And it was, it was a, it was a revolutionary transformative time of my life. But when I graduated from BYU up and until the time that I actually had my diploma shipped to me and even months afterwards, I had a story in my head that they're going to find out about me and they're going to take my diploma away. Isn't that weird? Isn't that
0: weird? Um, No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) You're asking the wrong person, Shiloh. <laughs> All right. You know, this I'll ask this to rhetorically to everyone
1: too. else listening.
0: Yeah. This, this points to something else, too. We share in these stories. We, we agree, you know, I'll play along with your story if you play along with my story, right? And there are these stories, you know, I, I actually just, I got, I got referred to a, um, someone who was looking for someone to teach religion by someone who thought I was qualified to teach religion. And I am. And then again, it depends on, you know, in this particular college, in this particular state, they, they insist that you have to have, you know, the story is you have to have 18 credits of comparative religious studies or, or of course, a degree in religion, but at least those 18 credits of graduate studies and comparative religious studies to be able to teach religion. I don't have that. But, you know, here I am hosting this podcast weekly where we, we, we take a comparative religious approach. I'm the guy who read 50 books on Buddhism last year and has read the Bhagavad Gita six times already this year, et cetera, right? And, and you know, I have, I have friends, I, I, know, I, know some, I know people who graduate and never read a book again. And, and, but the story is, this is how it works, right? You have to have this particular story and this particular way of doing it, otherwise it doesn't count. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. See, it's, again, stories about how this works, right? And
0: uh, and they're shared. And they're shared. Right? They're, they're, they're these social conventions and and stories that are, cons- that are socially constructed reality. Look, it's the same thing I was talking about. Marriages, borders between countries. How about President of the United States? We all agree that... Biden is president of the United States. Well, maybe not. We don't all agree. But here's the thing. If you don't agree, <laughs> you can story. still be, quote unquote, yeah, you can still be wrong, right? Because, and by the way, if you try to get too close to him, because and the story is he's the president and you can't get too close to him. They will arrest you no matter what you believe, right? So, but this is a, there's no such thing as president of the United States. And there's no such thing as money, you can't find money anywhere, not, and not unless we make up a story that there's money. There's salt, there's gold, there's, there's trees that we could make into green paper with some ink and other things, right? But there's no such thing as money. That's something that we agree on that we made up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, there, there's a conversation there of even saying, well, yeah, the salt, the physical tangible thing exists. But even the language of the sound word meaning salt, what that means, those four letters about what that means, that even has a story attached to it too, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. Because
1: even language.
0: Yeah, when I say salt, I'm just thinking of the guy kneeling on the field. Right. <laughs> that's
1: <it. laughs> I, I, and that's why didn't want to, I didn't want to get too complicated when we were having that initial discussion. Because, but language itself is a story. And so it's like the, yeah. the even the medium and the, and the mode that we're using to communicate our ideas in itself a story. We can't get away from this. And so just like my story of being an imposter of always being behind, I've had to resolve that. I just found out today that I am officially getting into my, I'm, I'm going to be, as of the next couple of weeks, I will be officially a PhD student and I've come a very Congratulations. Thank you. I've come a very long way in that imposter syndrome, right? I don't feel that anymore. That's not my, that's not the story that I live, but I've had to work really hard on that.
0: Now, it was never. Well, I remember. I, I remember when you. It was because of the imposter syndrome, or because of what you thought you didn't know, that you thought you needed to go for a PhD, and then you had an awakening, right? You had an experience of understanding and realizing that that was a story, and you decided not to go for it. And then on the other side of that, you chose, which is different, right? It's not. You didn't have to do this because you had this this feeling of lacking something, right? You just chose it and now you're doing it. It's a completely different experience, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point.
1: (laughs) I probably would have forgotten, but completely forgotten about that. Yeah. Because I had, I'd gotten on the course at some point to, to start master's work and and to work my way to a PhD, but I started to recognize myself. I was still living in the story of the imposter syndrome and of needing to catch up. And I actually quit school. I like walked out. I was like, you know, I'm taking a hiatus. I'm walking out of this. I can't live my life in a world where I feel this way, and I can't. I can't show up inauthentically to the world living in this story. So I took some time off. I ended up starting a business. I had a pest control business for a while, and I was successful at it. And it was it was a thing. And I and I was going to build it and grow it up really big. And then an opportunity came along to get into another PhD program. And so I had to work into it and, and here I am. So I was able to sell my, I was able to sell my company and have that now fund my, my PhD program, which is, everything's worked out really well that way. But this whole time has been one. And the thing is, is here's the, here's the deal, Christopher, you and I both know this. And I, I I used to teach the seminary students this all the time. It's the question, why is it so easy to believe the bad stories about ourselves and so hard to believe the good stories about ourselves?
0: yeah and it's funny i've talked about- well i know why actually this is really relevant to this to our conversation hey you're the one studying uh satan and well let's see satan the devil the serpent and all these other things that have been conflated right it's this it's satan it's the accuser right who where is that accuser it's right here it's it's in me and it's the one telling me that nope that 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 good story is not the true one it's the bad one That's the true one, right? It's the one telling me, no, you're not worthy. No, you're not uh, qualified. You're an imposter, right? That's the accuser.
1: Yeah. We took the accuser, we took the accuser narrative of of how we originally identified that voice of accusation within us, and we projected that out, and and that's how, you know, largely how we created the external construct and the embodiment of Satan. Um, Most largely... With with, the
0: capital S, right? With the capital
1: S, yeah. Usually in the Second Temple, you know, it's after the... uh, when the the Jews came back from exile, right, and so th-
0: and that has everything to do with uh, their contact with their Zoroastrianism, this very you know good and evil dichotomy you know that the, the, that narrative right from that religion yeah,
1: so yeah so when the when the before the Jews went into exile, Satan was not the embodied. Being of evil that uh, that we portray him as, and we think we read him now into the scriptures, he was he was a completely different entity, and we don't want to get into that too heavily. But it was after their exile, and they came out of exile into Syria, and they came by way of Zoroastrianism that we now think that, and we pretty conclusively know that it was the contact with the Zoroastrians that, that gave us the idea of an embodiment, this embodiment of evil, that now we call Satan as as an actual physical being, and so it originally came from this idea that. We, they recognized it was so easy to believe the accusing voices within our own soul. And so this was the, the original conversation, right? And so now we li- we're living today the same conversation that has been plagued mankind for thousands of years. What we are experiencing now is no different than what any human being has experienced for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and has written about it, talked about it, philosophized about it, and tried to overcome it. So that brings me some comfort in that all of this negative self-talk and all of the stories, the bad stories, that really helps me recognize and be able to let go of stupid bad stories in my life when I realize this is what humanity's been doing forever. And if they've been doing this forever, guess what? I get to do it too. I get to abandon all of the bad stories about myself. I, I get to take the story and I get to use it so long as it's working and until it stops working then I abandon it. I've, I you that's know the, where I'm at in my life of like getting rid of bad stories. You find a bad story in your life that's not working for you, just just let go of it.
0: Yeah, you know the Matrix comes to mind again. It's you're you're, you're talking about an experience of starting to see the ones and the zeros for those who have seen the movie, right? And to be able to just. Take the bullet that's coming at you and just kind of look at it and turn your head sideways and go, huh? Well, oh, that's interesting. And then just they all just drop, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's just recognizing it's all stories it's all stories and it's okay that it's all stories. I know I had, a, it's okay that it's all stories. Yeah, I had
1: to go through years and years and years and years of being able to, to be able to make that statement and make it meaningful. <laughs> it's okay oh, that it's all yeah. stories <laughs> because I was like, dang, dang it. No, I don't want it to just be all stories. i I want to find objective truth. I want to find objective factual sure. truth. Right.
0: And, and it's out there, right? There's, there's, a pile of white stuff there's a guy kneeling on a field that's that's there right right you know it's funny because I actually shared the there was a an elders quorum meeting I went to when I was traveling and I was visiting Utah and over the summer and there was this lesson on the talk infuriating unfairness and I shared the Chinese farmer story and after I shared the story here's what I got this is the reaction I got well but there really are things that really are infuriatingly unfair (laughs) And I didn't have the wherewithal to say, maybe, maybe (laughs) I just, I just sighed and shook my head and fell silent. You know, I should have said, maybe. There really are. It is, it is so hard to
1: initially come to that point because when we are, if anyone's feeling that pushback of like, no, there's really things that have meaning, like objective meaning, these things are absolutely meaningful. It's that typically means that there's been a lot of trauma in our lives. Because I've experienced that, there are things that I'm like, no, that was objectively meaningful.
0: And when I've sure, you and I aren't without stories, Shiloh. I've I've got my stories, you've got your stories. We're just trying to notice them, right? Yeah, that that's what it is. That's what that's what contemplation is about. It's about noticing.
1: But it, it's it's what happens when we live in our stories, but we don't recognize them as stories. We recognize our stories as reality itself. That's what we're trying to get to recognize here is that it's okay to live in stories it's okay that we make stories it's okay that we're the meaning making thing behind stories but the problem is is that what damns us from being able to repent and see god differently is repentance is literally the leaving behind of stories that aren't working is that as we find these stories aren't working we can let them go but the problem is is that when we make the stories reality It makes it impossible for us to let him go because we, our brain sees that as reality and you can't let go of reality. So in in essence, it just, it damns us from progression and so accept these things. And so for me, it was really hard because there were some stories in my life that I saw as reality. There are still some stories in my life that I see as reality and I have to deal with them as they become present and the more i'm able to deal with them as they become present the more it liberates and frees me because i'm no longer i i've lived with a great amount of anxiety in my life and the one thing that helps me get rid of anxiety the most is when i can start dealing with these stories that i've made reality and i can start seeing them as stories because the minute i start seeing them as stories i can start abandoning those stories that aren't working for me and i can actually start creating things that are that, that actually work and are beneficial for me in my life.
0: Amen. You know, shadows. we come to a close here. I, I want to come back to Meister Eckhart and the idea that we might have to give up our story about God, right? That even, even our image of God can be an idol. You know, we think, no, this really is God, and it turns out, nope, it's a golden calf, right? And so... Th- to, to be able to take that step, to actually consider that perhaps our even our image of God might be an idol gives us the opportunity to open up to who and whatever God really is and to be able to experience that. And, and you know, we, we, it may be that we, we do this and we think we have actually succeeded and we have to do it again. And, you know, because we just could fall into the same trap all over again. But if we keep opening up, And if we keep allowing, not not having God has to show up in a certain way as our goal, but having an openness to the possibility of whatever God is. And being open to that and letting God show up in the way that God wants to show up. Because to take a Sufi image, right, where, and we, if you know Sufi poetry, there's this love poetry that Sufis write, and these are the mystics in Islam, right, and they're writing this love poetry where the lover, the beloved, is God. And the wine that they write about, because, you know, wine is actually prohibited, alcohol is prohibited in Islam, they're talking about being intoxicated in an experience of God in in love of god and so to take that image if you can imagine yourself whether you are a man or a woman in this relationship you are in the archetypal female passive position of waiting for god to show up and being open to god showing up and coming and and let me just say taking you is there anything you would like to say in closing, Shiloh?
1: Yeah, you know, you mentioned I, uh, Meister Eckhart again, and just to to clarify, because I think in a lot of times, whenever we bring up that quote from Meister Eckhart to to let go our very idea of God, I think sometimes that carries a connotation with it that we mean we need to disbelieve in God, or that we need to to let go of of uh, you know either actively disbelieve in God or to not believe at all, and. That's not what he's getting at at all. That, in fact, he was widely misunderstood in his own day because of that. Um, what he's getting at is, is that when we... And I'll just... My own experimentation with, with, with this is that there were many characteristics that I held onto of who and what God was that were very damaging to me. Um, number one was, was that God was a conditional God that, that if I did X, then God does Y and that God only blesses me. If I do X, then God does Y. And until I do X, God doesn't do Y. And then I had some experiences in my life where I, where God came and saved me when I had not done X. So I experienced Y without ever doing X and it was, thank God (laughs) literally. And it was in that moment when I recognized grace when i didn't earn grace i hadn't achieved grace i hadn't done anything to be able to experience grace in fact i was doing everything else to not receive grace and these are the moments when i sort of recognized that god was not fitting into the parameters of the box that i'd put him into god was showing me new things about god that didn't match the box that i'd put him in got into right and so in that way i've experimented with letting go of my idea of god And, and in letting God be whatever God is going to be, but still approaching God. Um, one of the ways that I did that seeking him, right? Seeking him. Yeah. One of the ways that I did that was, it, it was just my, of my own kind of on my own make. I know this has been done before, but I'd never heard of anybody doing it was coming to God with a word wordless prayer. You know in the in the in the Sermon on the Mount it says that God already knows what you you need before you even ask of it. And so I I guess I didn't empty the whole idea of God, <laughs> but I but I came to it and I and I wanted to have a moment when I just sat there with God without me saying anything and maybe in just making my intentionality of sitting there with God be sufficient maybe just me being intentional there to listen to God would be sufficient enough conversation for then God to want to speak to me. And I, and I trusted that maybe God wanted to be that way. So I, I, I let go of all of the old conditions of saying, I need to say a prayer in this particular way, in this particular way of doing things. And I, and what I call the Mormon formulaic way of praying, um, which I don't think is inherently bad. It was just one that had become an idol to me. And, and sitting there, what, what came what came in those very precious sacred moments for me was was a God that sometimes there was just nothingness in those moments, and I, I didn 't sense anything, but I learned to find such beauty in those moments and then sometimes there was something else, and those moments were beautiful and those were the moments when I, when I learned to find a beautiful loving, kind God that was beyond my comprehension before. And all it took was for me to be able to let go of the old idea I had of God and be willing to let myself see something new. And what I found is that there is a kind, benevolent, loving God that is always proactive. And that has given me a lot of comfort. So letting go of our idea of God is... Letting go of the false ideas, the stories about God that aren't working, and letting God be something new in our lives to where maybe we can let go of those old ideas and experiment with something new to be able to see this really big, loving God that is so much bigger than the construct and the dogmas that we try to put him into.
0: Maybe even all things new, as Jesus said. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing of your time and yourself and your stories stories. Thank you for being with me. Stories are great. Thank you for having me on. It's been a great conversation. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm Shiloh Logan. Have a great week.